Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. That was really beautiful. Uh, People are getting saved. People are getting baptized. It's all about souls. There's still a lot of wonderful things that's happening. God is doing a lot of great things. So we thank the Lord for that. And as the worship team sang earlier, we stand in awe of God because he is so awesome. So let's stand for the reading of the word. We'll be reading in uh, Malachi, chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is not that evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Or that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun... To its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and the pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I... I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Father, help us to this morning to bring to you what's best, our devotion and our attention and our praise to you, because you are worthy of it. Thank you for this service, Father, in which uh, Veronica and Donna and Sarah were baptized today. Bless them and let them grow in their faith and be strong as all of us. Uh, Take 
control over the rest of our service. We give it to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Kids would go out with Miss Sharon. She's going to take you guys over to Children's Church. All right. All right, if you guys would pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I thank you so much for the opportunity that you have given us this morning to worship you as a community, as a family. God, to celebrate this amazing birthday for these three women as they enter into your kingdom. God, we pray with all of our heart that you would be with us this morning, that you would empower us this morning, God, that you would come in and fill up those places that we lack, that you would enable us to worship you with all of our hearts and souls and minds, God, that what we give you this morning would be our best, and that it would bring glory to your name. Well, please be with me as I bring this message to your people, God, I ask that you would empower me, that you would anoint me with holy unction for the preaching of your word this morning, so that every word that I speak would come from you, and anything that I would say that is not from you, you would cast away. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. As, uh, as many of you guys have known, um, I'm kind of a news junkie, and so the last couple of days have been kind of hard on me because I've spent most of it glued in front of my phone watching videos off of CNN about the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and man, it, it's a hard thing to watch. Um, we've had a lot of hard things to watch this year. Um, we kind of started off with Afghanistan, and then we've moved through some different things, and now we're at, at Ukraine, and it's, <clears throat> it's tough to watch scared women holding children, to watch resolute men in street clothes holding machine guns, staring down tanks. This is stuff that is, this is high drama. And our hearts go out to them. And, and yet in that, there's also an element of shame. Because I, I, I want to be the kind of country where, where we can just step in and help. Right? I'm, I'm sure many of us feel that way. Like we want to do something. We wish that we could still be the kind of country where we could just, we could roll the tanks in and just save them all. That we could be the cavalry. But the sad truth is, as a nation, we have dwindled and shrunken 
Our military has dwindled. Our national ethos has shrunken. We have wasted our strength on wars we didn't need to fight, and now we can't stand up for the freedom or democracy of people that we should be defending. And, and, and the overwhelming reality in times like this is to feel like our best days are behind us. And to kind of lose ourselves in nostalgia. As we sat with some of our friends last night, sitting around and talking, we were like, man, the 90s were great. And not just like that song, Breaking Up Was Easy in the 90s. No, like the 90s were actually great for those who grew up in them. You watch the sitcoms from the 90s, depending on whichever one you are. You're looking at a culture that existed in a nation that was the global superpower. I mean, what we said went around the world. And now, sadly, it doesn't feel like that. That sense of faded glory can pervade many things, not just a, a nation. If we're honest, faded glory can pervade a church. Many churches across our city and across our nation, will point to the best days as being those that were behind them. Oh, do you remember when we did this or that event? This year was really good. That ministry was so awesome. And we look back and see the things that happened before and we don't believe that they can happen again. We look back to the glory that was and we, begun, we begin to be ruled by nostalgia. Well, the book of Malachi takes place in the midst of a people that are enduring that exact same phenomenon. The book of Malachi is the last book that we have in our Old Testament. And it is the last book that we have in our Old Testament because it was probably the last book that was written. It's the last act of prophecy by God before 400 years of silence. The prophet came to a people that had had a hard thousand years, honestly. A people who had gone from the height of a powerful kingdom under King David and King Solomon to finally being beaten and enslaved and dragged off into exile. As our, as our book opens this morning, they've returned to the land and they've kind of rebuilt some semblance of who they used to be. But nothing's the same. Seventy years later means that some of the people that Malachi is writing to may have actually witnessed the fall of the temple. Now they live in a land with a much smaller temple and a much diminished city. See, they've, they've come back out of exile and they've waited for God to pour out his blessings on them. They've waited for the great and glorious day of the Lord, the thing that all the prophets had been speaking about. And, and they, they waited. And they waited. And they, they waited. They waited for their Messiah to show up. 
and he didn't come. Year after year, decade after decade, it didn't happen. And in the course of things, they gave into their national tendency to wander. Now, they didn't wander back into idolatry. That lesson had been learned. What they wandered into was this kind of apathetic, half-hearted sort of life. They grew complacent and lazy and immoral. They intermarried with the women from outside of Israel. When they grew tired of their wives, they just divorced them. When they worshipped, they worshipped God in a half-hearted unenthusiastic, lackluster way. And the result is the book of Malachi. As God begins to speak to his people to tell them what worship should look like. See, God wants their best. But it's hard to give your best when secretly... You resent God. And so Malachi begins by calling the Jews out for the way that they're worshiping him and being honest with them about how they truly feel. And he says, the Lord of hosts says to you, O priests who despise my name. I want to stop for just a second there. Malachi is written to the priestly class. These are the people whose job it is to conduct the worship in the temple. And he is going to the priests and telling them, you despise my name, O priests. And then he goes on and he has this kind of interesting analogy. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. And if then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my fear? He's making this argument from analogy that children honor their parents. Right? This is interwoven into Jewish culture. Children, honor your father and mother. And all of Israel identifies themselves. They think about themselves as children of God. They are the children of God. And yet, if they're God's children, why do they not respect God? Oh, they are the servants of God. Well, if they serve God, why do they not fear him? It's important that we understand this. See, he claims to speak to people that revere the name of God so much that they won't even write it down. They won't say it in public. They have this pretentious way of demonstrating that they fear the name of God, and yet their actions, everything that they do, all of it, points to the fact that they really don't care that much about God. You really, really don't fear him. See, God is many things. He's loving and he's merciful, but he is above all things holy. And holiness demands fear. 
We need to understand that when the Bible tells us to fear the Lord, it doesn't mean that we should hide under our bed or see him as mean or capricious or a distant tired. It means that we should respect him for who and what he is. We shouldn't presume upon his kindness or take his mercy for granted. And the Jews at this point have begun to do that. Probably the best illustration of this, the best way to look at this comes from the, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where, where the, there, there's this group of children, it's in this fantastical world, and they're talking about this lion that is the king. And one of the little girls says, Aslan is a lion? And they said, yeah, the lion, the great lion. And the little girl says, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. What God wants them to understand is above all things, they should not ignore him or treat him as if he were tame. He's not safe. He's something far better than that. He's good. And so Malachi makes this inflammatory statement to these men that are supposed to be the ones that are in charge of worship for the entire people. He says, you despise God. You treat him as if he does not matter. He wants them to understand that God demands that his people honor him through authentic worship. Now, authenticity is one of those words that we hear a lot. It's kind of the watchword of, of our modern culture. It, it, it means lots of different things to lots of different people, but at its most basic, it means real. We're, we're told that you need to be your authentic self. Just be your authentic self, man. Live your truth. Mike, be, you be you, brother, right? And what they mean by that is don't pretend to be somebody you're not. Don't be fake, Right, Because we've come through a, through a time in our culture where everything was fake. Where everything was curated by Madison Avenue experts to make everybody look a particular way. And that, that filtered its way down into Christianity, right? We, we had a whole generation, generations of, of people that were raised to think that if, if you didn't look a particular way or you didn't speak a particular way or you didn't go to a particular kind of church that you weren't really a Christian, and, and so we would hear people say, well, Christians don't do that. Oh, surely Christians don't listen to rock and roll music. That's the music of the devil. And I mean, in some of it is, okay, but, <laughs> but, but not the stuff Mike plays. It's okay. Right? Okay, Christians don't, Christians don't dance. Dancing? For Christians? No, surely not. Now, all the time I come across people that are like, you're, you're, a, you're a Christian, so surely you don't do this or that thing. See, we were raised to, to see Christianity as this kind of, well, I mean, honestly, to see it like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Yeah, everybody who laughed, I know what you watch. Yeah, you've been caught. You know, this kind of, Overly nice, sticky, sickly, sweet, fake guy who you really don't want to be around and is just kind of steals all the fun from the room. And so in, in response to this, we, we keep being told, oh, we have to be authentic, man. You have to be authentic. 
Be who you really are. But here's the, here's the, the, the problem, right? You should totally be authentic unless you're not a great person. Okay? If, if you're, like, not great, like you're mean and opinionated and abusive, you, you shouldn't be that. Okay? Don't, don't be authentically a jerk. Some people are like, oh, I'm authentic. Man, I'm, a be, I'm, I'm authentic. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think all the time. Everybody here deserves to hear my opinion. Y'all are all entitled to my opinion. That, no, that's not what we're saying. And in the same way, our worship should be authentic, but that authentic worship should reflect a true condition of a heart that loves God. Brothers, listen to me. If we don't love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and skill, then our authentic worship is going to be terrible. It will be authentically terrible. So let's keep that in mind here. When God calls for his people to, to have authentic worship, he's not saying, I just want you to, you know, be as nasty as you want to be. Just, you know, like come in here and give me your, your worst and your last and your least and not really care that much. And that's cool because that's actually who you are. You're super lazy. That's not what God is saying. No, no, God wants and demands our best from us. And so Malachi begins to explain what this looks like. He, he begins to show them how the worship that they have been giving him through their sacrifices and their offerings haven't been glorifying God. Instead, they've been heaping contempt on God. So what does he say? He says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. That's how they've been despising God. But you say, how have we polluted you? And he says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Now understand here, the Jews are still operating under a sacrificial system. And sometimes as evangelicals and as modern people, we look back on that and we're like, oh, that's so silly. <laughs> Killing animals? I only kill animals to eat them. And yet God has developed a sacrificial system in the Old Testament for a very specific reason. It's very specific, it's very pointed, and its job is to point to Jesus. Everything comes with a, with a burden of sin, and that sin has to be cast away through sacrifice. From the very beginning in the Old Testament, we see this. What's the first thing that happens when Adam and Eve sin? The very first thing that happens is God covers their nakedness because they come out and they've got like this nasty, like there's like a fig leaf that they're trying to cover the front and back with and it's, look, it's really kind of embarrassing. And so what does God do? God takes one of the creatures that he made and he kills it and uses it to cover them with its skin. Now why on earth would he do that? He does that to set the point from the very beginning that blood covers sin. That sin against God is something that is so serious. It is something that is so deep and so dark that only by shedding blood can it be cast away. Now, why would he be trying to make that lesson? Well, because he's trying to set up that thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, 
One man would shed his blood for all of our sin. And so the entirety of the sacrificial system exists to point to that. And here's, here's some keys with the sacrificial system. You don't get to offer whatever you want to offer. You're not like, oh, i got some cockroaches here. They'll do. Yeah, man, I got lots of cockroaches and a couple of rats, and I'll just go in here and I'll, I'll mash them up and put the rats on top. Here you go, God. Sweet, now I'm good. No, God demands your best. When God asks for a sacrifice from your flock, he's not looking for the lame one at the end, the one that's cross-eyed or blind or lame or looks weird. No, he wants your best. He wants a male not because males are better, but because there's fewer of them. Because the males are important. You have like one real, like your one stud bull. That's the one he wants. And he, he wants to make sure that it's, that it's healthy. And here's another one. He wants to make sure that it's yours. Right? You can't go to your neighbor's yard and be like, I'm going to take your cow and bring it over here and sacrifice. Are we good, God? Sweet. Okay. All of these things, they sound kind of funny. These are all things that the Jews were doing at this time. The, the Jews, when given the opportunity to sacrifice, weren't going and picking out their best goat. They weren't going out and picking out uh, the, the male from their flock that was their most precious. They were going and trying to pass off kind of the, the worst or the ones that they could do without, the last, the leftovers. But, but hear me out, guys. God doesn't want your leftovers, you don't really even want your leftovers. God definitely doesn't want your leftovers as if, as if that would be sacrifice. No, no, sacrifice is supposed to cost you something. If it doesn't cost you anything, then it's not a sacrifice. And so Malachi begins to lay this out to them and, and, and calls on them to stop trying to pass off Second-hand sacrifices. And then he asks them a really interesting question. He says, present that to your governor. He says, will, will the tax collector accept that? Is the tax collector going to accept kind of the, the sweepings from under the table that you bring to him? Now, I don't know many tax collectors. I know a few. The government wants your best. You know how you know? They take it before you even see it. Y'all remember that the first time you had income tax? You got your first job. You went out there and, and you, you opened up your check and you thought, man, I worked like 30 hours. I got all kind of money coming to me. And you realize that Chris Sorvillo took like 20% of what you had. I'm going to keep picking on you, Chris, man. I'm just, it's going to happen every time. And you're like, who is, who is FICA and what's he doing with all my money? Well, governments haven't changed, guys. Governments haven't changed. These are a conquered people. They have a governor, and that governor gets a cut of everything that they've got. And guess what? He gets it before you get it. So if you don't make enough, then you starve. The government doesn't starve. That's how governments work. And so Malachi says, will the governor accept you or show you favor if you bring him these sacrifices? Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
He's saying the Lord is telling them that he would rather the sacrificial system be totally shut down than then they would continue to offer what they're offering on the altar. Half-hearted, insincere worship does not glorify God. It demonstrates our contempt for him. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking right now. You're like, whew, man, we, we, we lucked out. We don't have to do sacrifice anymore. So this totally doesn't apply to me, Pastor. Why are you even saying it? Here's why. We continue to live under a sacrificial system. But the sacrifices have changed. No, you should not go in your backyard, take a goat, and cut its throat. If you do, you'll go to jail, okay? Don't do that. That's not the kind of sacrifice that God is asking from you right now. Well, what is he asking from you? Well, we, hear, we see that in Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So we have changed in the sacrificial system through Christ. When Christ came, he fulfilled all the sacrifices. Everything before pointed to the cross. Everything now points back to the cross. Each of us, brothers and sisters, are called on by God to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. We do that every single day of our lives. As we sacrifice our choices, our priorities, the things that we want to God. When we look at it that way, I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, are you giving God your best? Like, be honest. Are you giving him your best or are you giving him what's left over at the end? Are you giving him the, the best of your time? Right? Are, are you giving him in, in, in reading your Bible and spending time with him, spending time in community, are you giving him the best hours of your day or are you tacking these on at the end of the day right before you go to sleep when you are the most exhausted? It says a lot about who you are and what you actually believe about God. Are, are you giving him the best years of your life? Are you serving him now or are you waiting till some later date when everything calms down and everything's good? When, when life is not as difficult or you don't have as many things pressing on you, then, then you'll be able to serve God well. Well, I, one of the blessings of being at a church with a lot of retired people is I've learned the lesson that Guess what? Life is never easy. Retirement does not bring some kind of magical time where you can spend all your time with God. You have to give him the best that you have right now. Are you giving him the best of your treasure? See, Malachi is a, is a book about tithing later on, and it'll talk about the people bringing their offerings into the storehouse. But <clears throat> I just want to ask you right now, are you giving... The best that you have to God. Are you giving to him at the beginning of the month? Before your bills? Or are you waiting till the end to see if there's anything left? Maybe you'll give him what, what's left with the, the, the change you pull out of the couch cushions. The ta there's a reason the tax man takes his money before it hits your bank account. Because he knows that if he waited, you wouldn't bring it. So I want to challenge you. 
Really look at your life. Are you giving to him what is best? Are you giving to him what is first? Because see, there's something deeper going on here. The people of God are giving God their last and their least because deep down, they resent God. They're angry with him. They're frustrated with him. Malachi tells him, Oh, that there were among you those who would shut the door that you might kindle fire on my altar. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name as a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit is despised. When you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, and says the, says the Lord of hosts. When you take what is taken by violence, shall I accept these from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. And we, we come to the real issue. See, the, the people of God... The people of God are treating sacrifice as a weariness. They're offering half-hearted and grudging obedience to God. Malachi wants the priest to understand that God takes no pleasure in half-hearted sacrifice. It's not enough to just kind of do what you think maybe God will, what you can get away with. God wants everything that you have, and he wants it to be given in a way that is joyful. So, so often when, when we read about tithing or even about serving, we, we, we read this verse that says, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. And so we say, oh, you know what? That means that if I'm not cheerful, I shouldn't give. <laughs> That's not what that means. It means you should learn to be cheerful in giving. It means you should be cheerful in serving. And in sacrificing your life every day, all the time. See, the Jews are despising God through half-hearted and grudging attitudes towards worship. And all of this comes because they're sitting in the ruins of their once great nation. I mean, just to be honest, it's no fun to lose and to be reminded that you lose all the time. That doesn't make you want to go beyond what you're doing. And so because the people of Israel have been looking back at who they used to be, because the people of Israel have been focusing on all the things that have been going wrong and all of the things that they don't have, they're not claiming any of the promises that God has made to them. They can't see that their best days are not behind them. Their best days are in front of them. That they're not at the end of their story. That there is something so much better that's on the horizon. So Malachi closes this way. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. He begins to hint 
that something else is coming. That those prophecies that they thought were fulfilled are not actually fulfilled. That there is someone else who is coming that is going to proclaim the name of God throughout the nations. That the worship that they are withholding from God will one day be offered by the nations. See, Christ will come. He's the key to the sacrifice He's the key to the worship issue. He says, for the, from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place. Incense will be offered in my name and, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. They have the option of, of worshiping or not worshiping him. But it won't stop the name of the Lord God going out to the nations. They've had a hard time, and it's hard for them to understand based on their present conditions. But if they could only have seen their current situation in the light of God's future promises, it would have made them grateful, and that gratefulness would have made them faithful. See, authentic worship comes from a grateful heart, and it brings glory to God. And brothers and sisters, that's critical for us right now. Whether we're looking at our nation or we're looking at our church or we're looking at our families or we're looking at our life, we have been shown over and over again God's unwavering goodness to us. And yet so often all we focus on is those things that have gone wrong. That's because that's what the devil does. Right? The devil whispers in our ear and has been whispering from the very beginning that somehow there is something that we need that God won't give to us. That somehow his plan isn't great. Somehow his plan is to cheat us and rob us and leave us in the wilderness. And, and, and if we will just have eyes to see, we'll be able to see that he has been good to his people. That he has provided to his people. That he has upheld his people and given mercy to his people. Brothers and sisters, if we can do that, if we can focus on the amazing blessings that God has given to us, then maybe we will begin to think about his promises more than the illusion of the past that was really never as great as we think it was. See, the heart of worship is gratitude. And so we must consecrate ourselves through Christ as a pure sacrifice offered to the glory of God by embracing the gratitude that we have for the things that he's given us. And when we do that, when we develop a heart of gratitude, then the offerings that we give won't be half-hearted. They won't be the last that we have or the least that we have. No, it will be the overflow of a heart that's crying out for more. Brothers and sisters, God does not want half-hearted, grudging obedience. It does not bring him glory. 
He wants the overflow of a grateful heart. So how do we develop a grateful heart? I mean, it's great for me to say this stuff, but what does it look like to develop a grateful heart? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to stop comparing ourselves to other people. Comparison, brothers and sisters, is the enemy of contentment. And you know where we compare ourselves? On this. This is the first thing you look at when you wake up in the morning. Don't lie. Not in church. First thing you do when you get up out of bed, before your feet hit the ground, is you open this up to check Facebook or Instagram, CNN, something. And from that moment till the end of the day, you know what this thing is doing? It's telling you all of the ways that you don't have the things that you need. All the ways that you don't measure up. All the people out there that have more than you whether it's experiences or stuff. And you know where it leaves you? Depressed and sad. Makes you think that you don't have the things that you need. And you know who takes the brunt of that? God. As you shake your fist at him and say, oh, if I only had a little bit more. I'm not talking about you guys and not myself. I do the same thing. I do it in pastor ways, which are... Super holy. <laughs> Drive by the Catholic Church and I go, oh, they have so many cars in the Catholic Church. Must be that I'm better than them because, you know, there's nobility and smallness. Well, that, that pastor has a better YouTube ministry than me. I mean, it's a real thing. This is, these are things that we actually think, okay? That's, that's, I'm giving you an insight into my life right now. Y'all are laughing at me. I don't know what it is that you compare yourself to others in. Maybe the car you drive, maybe the house you live in, maybe the vacations you go on or the experiences that you have. Whatever they are, comparison is the enemy of contentment. You got to realize that you are living the life that God gave to you, not the life that God gave to somebody else. And so your job is to live the life that God has given to you with its challenges and with its blessings. And when you do that, when you live the life that God has given to you, you begin to become content. When you have a lot or you have a little, you become content in the place that you are. Brothers and sisters, I, I want to encourage you this morning. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop looking to other people to see where you should be, and instead embrace the amazing, glorious gifts that God has given to you. See, when we consecrate ourselves through Christ as a pure, sacrificial offering to God, then we can worship Him in authenticity. We can worship Him as we truly are and as we should be. Y'all pray with me now. Dear Lord, God, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us this morning to give up our life to you. As we continue our service, Lord, I ask that you would help us to sacrifice ourself, our souls and our bodies to you. That we would give everything that we have and all that we are to you. And that we would stop comparing ourselves to others.
Oh, Lord. If there's any in this room this morning who do not know you, that have never accepted you as their Lord and their Savior, if they've never given themselves into your hand, Lord, I pray that you would, you would use this time to call them forward. Lord, if there's anyone in this room this morning who has never made the decision to follow you in baptism, Lord, I pray that the testimonies that have been given this morning would draw them forward. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who just needs prayer, that they would find a place of peace and rest here. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.